Hello, everyone. Welcome to this opera preview um, uh, for uh, the, the Mask of Orpheus. Um, I'm joined by a terrific panel. We have three of the cast. Um, we have the second conductor, and we have the costume designer. I'll introduce them. Guess uh, which is the costume designer? <laughs> <laughs> I'll introduce them in turn when we, get, when we get to that. But the first question I want to ask you, uh, you guys, is how many of you saw the original uh, Orpheus um, 19, premiere in 1986? Right, three of you. Right. Now, I assume you're all far too young to have seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't born. <laughs> <laughs> neither was I. You weren't born either. <laughs> yes. I um, no comment. <laughs> but but and, and there was also a concert version that was done as well. Did any of you see that one? No. 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 So it's 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 pretty much new to new to all of you. Yes. 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 So. Um, let, let's actually begin with you, um, uh, the, co the costume designer, Daniel Lismore. Uh, Daniel, you're the only one who's new to this company. You know. I am, yes, and it's amazing. Um, how did it come about that you were asked to design this? So um, I was coming here, and I think I was trying to support the opera world by bringing celebrities and my friends like, uh, to see shows so it would get more you know, hype or buzz, or you know, I'd bring Pamela Anderson and David LaChapelle or certain people... And then I'd post about it, and, um, and then I think Daniel Kramer uh, had seen me here, and he'd got my book, and I did a book of sculptures. Like I, I live as sculpture; it's kind of my day off today, so I'm sorry about the outfit. But um, he uh, he asked me to come in for a meeting, and I honestly thought it was going to be about um, PR or you know, kind of helping out, bring more celebrities or whatever. And he said, and no one would tell me why this meeting was happening. And I went upstairs, and I was so unprepared, and he said, I want you to do an opera. And I was like, okay, this is like a dream come true, but oh my gosh. I'd, I'd done couture before. I dressed lots of celebrities and like pop concerts. and um, So a bit of theatrical work, but kind of living my life in my own theatres, it kind of equipped me for that. And... Um, <coughs> More or less, uh, he gave me the option of Marriage of Figaro or The Mask of Orpheus, and uh, I thought if I did The Marriage of Figaro, it'd just be ostrich plumes, and it would and a very cliche of me to do that. And then um, I decided that I'd do The Mask of Orpheus, and it was probably the, the hardest struggle ever um, to come up with ideas for it because of the three different worlds happening all at once on stage. And it was like a nightmare listening to the music. So f for me, like a, a great, <laughs> but a great nightmare. Like it, and I, I couldn't get my head into it. And and all of a sudden, I thought, well, this sounds like a dream. So I lucid dreamt a lot of the ideas that you'll see on stage. And then, um, yeah, that's that's how so, it so, came around. So this is your theatre, your legit theatre debut. It is, yes. So starting with 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 a very bold, very uh, difficult work. Yeah. <laughs> um, how, how well did you know opera? Uh, as I, a... I love opera. I've always yeah. listened to opera since I right. was young, and I've, I've been to, coming to the opera for 17 years. So Right. So hence being a, a regular here. Yeah. yeah. Whereas you guys... Are... Can I ask a question? Yes. Can you explain what lucid dread, to dream lucidly? Okay, so you kind of, it's like midday, you're not really tired, you go to bed with a notepad, this is how I work, with a notepad on my chest, and I put the music on, and I started to like... It's kind of like a trippy dream. You know, you have a lucid dream before you go to bed or, you, you know, yeah. just that moment before. 
And so I was able to wake myself up, and I've been practicing it for years, and I, I found out that this is how Dali worked. So, um, the, you know, it was, I tried to kind of work the same way, and that's how, how they came around. So that was your, res your research, as it were? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish we could learn music that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, talking of the music, uh, we'll come to the second conductor, um, uh, uh, who has been also, you're also a chorus master here, aren't you? Yep. James Henshaw. Um, James, this is a very compli complex score. There's two, unusually, there are two conductors conducting uh, throughout the opera. Yeah, so when, when, when Martin asked me to do, he said, do you, would you like to be the second conductor? I, like many people, thought that meant the, the assistant conductor, which is a kind of very normal position. And then he, you know, he said, there are, there are two conductors. And I said, so one off stage and one in the, you want me to be off stage conductor? He said, no, no, no. <laughs> There's a second conductor in the pit. Um, and I was like, okay, well, right, okay. Well, that sounds, that sounds like great fun. Um, and then the score arrived, and uh, the running joke it is... Suddenly it wasn't the first. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> And the chorus have a, have, have a joke. If anyone's seen um, that TV show, The Borrowers, the score is about this big. So if I'm standing next to it, it looks like I've shrunk. And I need, and I need to get one of those giant pencils to mark it up. Yeah. Because it's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, those of you who've heard the piece before will know how complex it is. And to just to explain, the second conductor thing is, is, is a total necessity. There are some points where... Uh, the, what he's asking for is uh, a, most of the orchestra, or a particular section of the orchestra, to carry on at one at, at one tempo with Martin, and then another small group, different each time, to do a completely different bit of music. Sometimes with a direct relationship to what's going on in the first orchestra, and sometimes not at all. Um, and it's the not a, the the bits that aren't at all related, but you still have to do at roughly the same time that are the most complicated bits. This must be incredibly complicated to rehearse. Yes. So, yes. Ha so how many rehearsals have you had? Not enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had our, we've just had our orchestra rehearsals. So just to give you an idea of some context, when they did this in the Royal Festival Hall in 1996, the BBC Symphony rehearsed for a week and a half. Um, we've, every, we've had three, three sectionals, so a percussion sectional, a brass sectional, and a woodwind sectional. So they've all had one rehearsal by themselves. And then on Monday, we did Acts 1, 2, and 3 in three rehearsals. And on Friday, we have our first sits prober. So uh, also the rehearsals are two and a half hours now, not three. Uh, so it's, it's extraordinary what we've achieved already. And uh, the, the, the one of the most complicated bits, the bit that's been done in concert a lot is Act 2, because it's, it's, it's probably the one with the, with the most kind of exciting long-term arc and then a fantastic climax. And there's a bit where... It's, I mean, it is called the Ensemble of Hell. Um, and it, it is, in terms of getting it to be an ensemble, hellish. It's, yeah. I'm doing one thing with the percussion and Martin is conducting another thing. And it, we are doing separate things at the same time for about 12 minutes. And there are bits where we're not in sync, not in sync, not in sync, not, not in sync. Figure 67, if you could just be at both at crotchet equals 120 at exactly the same time on the downbeat. And that happens several times throughout the whole piece. Uh, throughout, throughout that whole section. So I was most pleased when Martin turned to me and said, we only have enough time to do this once. <laughs> um, but we started at the beginning and we got to the end at exactly the same time. And he went, well, that's never happened before. <laughs> 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 so it's, um, it's I've, never, I've never seen anything quite as complex. It, it, I'm sure Peter will relate to this. It tormented my summer holidays. It's and uh, yeah, it's... Um, 
it's, I think, it, even just looking at the score, I think it's possibly one of the most extraordinary technical artistic achievements I've ever seen. It's, uh, to even have Im imagined some of the things that he's imagined, let alone come up with a way of writing it down, yes. I kind of, I'm kind of gobsmacked constantly. No, go ahead. It's essentially the the when an artist who is as as a serious artist in any field of art, I think you want to be as you will understand, Daniel. It you want to be as uncompromising as you can because you want to be true. You want to be absolutely honest and true to your art, and you want to give of your art you want to give everything you have you don't you don't want to fill theaters you don't want to please people you want to do what's i hesitate to say channeling the thing that the art the, the the talent that is channeling through you um and when harrison i guess when he when he came up with this thing and he he, he had to decide how the hell he was going to write the thing down how do you write something how do you put on paper how do you put it in a cage how do you put a framework around something that does not require or in your mind does not deserve to be caged or put in a framework? And so when you see the score for the first time, it is a bizarre thing that you, as a musician, and we're all trained in, and possibly some of you are as well, trained how to read crutches and quavers and time signatures and things like that. But he wanted something different from that, and he's trying to write it down and put it in a way that that other humans can understand and reproduce, and that's the whole point of our art as performers, is to reproduce as authentically and as honestly as we can what the composer wanted. Now, how does he do that? And so you open the score for the first time, like you did, and you think, what the hell is that? <laughs> and you, because you're, <laughs> you've gone to the Royal College or whatever, or the, in my case, you know, up in the north, and you, and you think, how the hell do I transcribe that? And I, I, it took me, God, it took me two weeks or so like that to figure out how to write down what he wanted in a, in a way that I could understand. And so... When I'd finally figured out how to do that, then it started to make sense. Sorry, that's all I wanted no, yeah, to say no, about the score. That's, that's so you've had, to, yeah. you've had to do a lot of preparation in advance before you came to the first day of rehearsal. Uh, yeah. I, I, so we had a music staff meeting because Martin, Martin is probably the world expert on this piece, but having done it more than once. Um, <laughs> uh, he's done my job once. Uh, he's done my job twice, um, once on the recording and once again, and then he's done the first conductor once. So... Uh, he, he's, he's as good as, as anyone at Burt Whistle. And we had a music staff meeting called by Richard Pearson, who's a wonderful music staff member here, many of you know, and he's kind of been coaching a lot of people. And, you know, n this sounds more um, snooty than I mean it, but when you have two music degrees, an undergraduate and a postgraduate, you're not used to the experience of opening a score and go, I don't know, I don't understand. What, what, what am I supposed to do? It's a very disconcerting feeling, but it is kind of deliberate. And so we sat down, we had eight members of music staff with three people with these enormous scores all sitting on the table. It looked ridiculous. And Richard Pearson said, okay, Martin, I understand what three, four means. What does five mean? Five watts. Yeah. And, and we started there 
And uh, most of the answers that Martin gave were, I don't really know. <laughs> Throughout the, but it, actually it was really useful to discover that there are not definites. A lot of the time, it's not, as Peter so brilliantly put it, it's not in a cage. And every five, all of the five performances will be... It's not aleatoric. No. It's not, um, you understand aleatoric music. It's, uh, that's, um, um, aleatoric music is music, uh, music that happens not by accident. It, 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 um, Four Minutes 53 by John Cage is, an, is the most famous example of aleatoric music. The pianist just sits there and the music is whatever happens. It's not that. It's somewhere in between, isn't it, a lot of it. But a, a, a lot of the music is actually scored perfectly normally in, 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 in the way that you would score a normal opera. Um, but some of it is not. Some of it is more fluid. Some of it is... is it actually describes the kind of things in the music. It's, it's fluid. Um, uh, Daniel, you've got to sing some stuff that is... That is uh, What's that? I oh, can yeah. see pictures or whatever. And you've got to do stuff that is against this fluid thing. It describes... A, we're describing a river at the time. Harry, um, uh, Harry Birtwistle is from the north, and, and in, the, in the second movement he describes this huge viaduct, which I, I know, because I'm from the north as well, and it's a 17-arch viaduct. It's a very famous one. You've probably seen pictures of it. And we're describing that, aren't we, Daniel? And, and yeah. it's and it's um, and I have to do a certain very flowing thing, and you have interjecting in in into that thing, aren't you, all the time? And yeah. that's that's what I mean about it. It is fluid. It is a f feeling. It's a picture, but it's also oh my god, it's almost impossible to describe. Yeah, yeah. How would you wish, describe wish. it? Well, actually, I just want to say, just pick on something yeah. that uh, you said earlier about this being this amazing most amazing piece and it, and it feels groundbreaking now and this is a third of a century since it was written <laughs> like we have we we have information about you know 33 years of music since then and this still feels to us like right on the edge right on the front edge of what's yeah. going on which is incredible when you think about that that, that, that harry was so far ahead of the game exactly um, I, I should point out that Peter's playing Orpheus the Man and uh, Daniel's playing Orpheus the Myth. You said, Peter, before, uh, mm. before you, we came up here, that when you got the, the score, you, you weren't sure which, which line you were singing. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yeah, the, the um, hands up, who's seen it before or heard it before? Yeah. Who knows the myth of Orpheus? Who knows the Greek myth of Orpheus? Yeah, I'm everybody yeah, must yeah. know that. <clears throat> well, he's born. He's born. And, as you know, uh, Apollo gives him the gift of, of the most amazing musicianship. He gives, him the, he gives him the lyre and everything like that. And in this piece, we, um, he's given the gift of speech, obviously. It's one of the first things that happens. And in the opening, <laughs> in the opening first 15 pages or so, and my character is learning how to speak, and so he's saying things like, and he's 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 trying to form how to speak. This is this is Orpheus being given by Apollo, the gift of speech, and then the gift of music, and then the gift of not only music but great great virtuoso 
music, but it, Harry does it in speech, doesn't he? And he starts and he's... And when I first saw the score, this is what you're talking about, I said to Martin, I said, are you sure this is my part? Because it's just some guy grunting around and I don't know what's going on. And uh, he said, oh, no, no, that's you. And I thought, well, I want to do the other part. It's, it's, it's a much nicer <laughs> part. Anyway, that's what you... We should just say, just because, you know, the score's not difficult enough, it took me quite a while to decipher because Orpheus the man in the score is Orpheus the singer, so has the initials OS. So you get the cast list, Orpheus the man, and then you spin it the whole first kind of, you know, the first year, you're like, where the hell is this Orpheus? Where's Orpheus the man? Where the hell is this guy? And then you say, and then who is OP? And you look it up, it's like, Orpheus the puppet. Well, I haven't got anyone for the puppet. What's going on? It is. It is, it is so... You went, to the, you went to the Bodleian Library, didn't you, to sort this out? When I, yeah, when I was first asked about it, yeah. yeah. But the vocals... So I was looking at a full score in the, in the Bodleian when I was looking... When I was first asked to do it and looking to see if I could get my head around it. Clever man, he looked at the score before he said yes. Yeah. <laughs> always, so he always. he dropped the Bodleian Library. <laughs> it's just my local. <laughs> Did all of this confuse you too? Uh, when you... I mean, you're, when you're coming to design, the, design it, you needed to know what's what's going on. Yeah, I, well, he wrote some kind of manual, so I kind yeah. of got it. But um, it it was really hard to. None of us had that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. But it was really hard to kind of understand at first. And then me, Daniel Kramer, and Lizzie, who did the set, yeah. um, we went over it for a year and a half before we even started, like to develop the characters. And um, and it was like trying to remake it into. A version of today with modern characters with modern ideas of myths and and it was just very hard but I had the chance um, when uh, when Bert Whistle was there he was at the first production meeting and I didn't know he'd be there and I, I wish he, I'd met him a year and a half before because <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, I said I'm gonna ask you one question because he was very busy talking to everyone and um, I said well, wh where was your head when you wrote this and he said I'm a dreamer. It was dreams. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, it, it makes so sense, it. yeah. <laughs> so it kind of made a lot of sense mm. that it was some, mm. like, crazy dream that, mm. you know, yeah. to me anyway. But you mustn't get the, the, the idea that this piece is, is um, somehow impenetrable. It's not. <laughs> it really, really is not. It's, it's the most... It's, it's a classic, it's the classic Orpheus, the Orpheus myth. The music is so beautiful. The melodies are so beautiful. Yeah, they're, they are. They're, they're presented and sometimes approached in a way that you, is unexpected. You, um, uh, can I sing a bit for you? Is that all right? He, he sings the bit at the beginning um, when he's when he's uh, realised that uh, that he's given by Apollo the gift of music and things. He sings this beautiful, I'll just sing a couple of hours, he goes, Soar into darkness, let the cave in, and the And so, and, and you know, it, oh my God, it's so beautiful. It's it's making the hairs on my hand on my thing stand up. So don't don't 
please think it's, it's that if you've never heard it before. When it, when it is, when it does go into more visceral and a more violent, uh, uh, violent, is that the right yeah, word for it? It's, it's a violent, violent. word it's very for violent. it. Yeah. It's very violent. Then it's, yeah. then it's extraordinarily percussive and really it, 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 it batters you in a way that I think, I don't know, I've, it's, it's, I've never known it actually before happen to me in a piece that I've rehearsed. Anyway, How many of you have sung Bert Whistle before? Right? Yeah. And, and you're, I played Bert Whistle. You played, right. Um, so what was the other Bert Whistle you did? I've done a couple of others, actually. Uh, the Last Supper, yeah. I've sung Judas in that a couple of times. Uh, it's an incredible piece. And uh, also with Martin conducting. Uh, and Yantan Tetherer. Right. Uh, and um, uh, Claire, you're, you're actually fairly new to the company, but you're having quite a season. I am, yes. This is just the first of several uh, productions you're going to be involved in this season. Yes, uh, I'm uh, a new Harvard artist here, starting this today. Well, not today, but this, 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 um, production. this production. And uh, I'm also covering in three other productions from January. Uh, but this is kind of definitely in at the deep end. Um, and it wasn't quite expected, but I'm grasping it and doing everything I can to kind of be up to the level of these fantastic colleagues that I'm working with. And I've already learned so much from them. Um, even the other day, uh, Peter said to me, you've got to think of it a bit like jazz. Because <laughs> some of the rhythms, that you know, there's a bit that Peter sings, which goes tumbling. And it, the only way that... I'm lying on a slab at this point, getting transformed. And every time Peter comes past me, I always think, oh, that's the bit that reminds me of Ella Fitzgerald or yeah. something else like that. So we were rehearsing a bit today that uh, is, is very off rhythm and, again, across the other, uh, other rhythms of the other singers as well as the orchestra. And because of Peter's advice, I thought, I'll go home. I'm going to swing it, I'm going to click along, I'm going to sing a bit of jazz to it, and it's going in that way. So that's um, very exciting. But it does, yeah. It's quite bluesy, it does, yeah. It is. When it's beautiful, it's quite a bluesy sound. It's, a, it's, um, <coughs> it's a curious thing, there's, a, there's another bit, isn't there, in, in the act in, in act two? Yeah. Where it, um, where it goes, it goes something like, <clears throat> Only fingers can feel the carving of the glass stones only I can hear and, and phrases like that and then they're there I mean it's John Coltrane or it's or it's it's something that it's, it's these beautiful beautiful melodies with a, a juxtaposed with that incredible percussive thing that's going on underneath Sorry, I'm a big fan. You may... <laughs> <laughs> uh, orchestrally, it's very, it is very... I mean, we've already spoken about the, 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 the two... What um, is the orchestration? How many uh, that bit. I mean, no, I, no, no, of the whole thing. I mean, it's not... There's no strings. Right, so, so there's no strings... Uh, just, uh, I mean, they've got time off. They've got so, which they never get. So they're 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 thrilled. Uh, so it's it's four woodwind players, and every single one is doubling a sister instrument. Sometimes uh, a lot. So the fourth flute is playing piccolo, alto flute, and bass flute. Is it? If anyone's seen a bass flute, it's absolutely enormous. Uh, then you've got four clarinets, four bassoons, four, you've got, so you've got three contrabassoons. The one with the curly top. Yeah, the curly top, and then you've got a contra contra bass clarinet. That's enormous. Uh, four horns who also play conches, which are seashells, 
And the, our four horn players have literally gone and got seashells and drilled holes them. In the, no, it, they, you'll hear it in act one. It's the most extraordinary sound. It's amazing. No? Straight in the hole. Oh, straight into the thing. Oh, the drilled holes. You should, and, you heard it here, folks. <laughs> and the, in the score, it says, whatever pitches, whatever pitches you want. So, so it says, whatever, whatever, so the priests have to sing the same pitches that the, con, the so three... Con the, but, but, so, so they got these things, and, they were, and, uh, and John Thurgood, who's the principal horn, was so thrilled. He was like, I think I've got G, a C sharp, and a D. And <laughs> what a great Burt Whistle chord. So, I bet he was. So we've got that. We've got uh, seven percussionists playing more percussion instruments you've ever seen in your life and quite frequently running around. When they did it at the Royal Festival Hall, one of the percussionists told me they had to run round the back because he couldn't go across the thing, so he had to run round the back to another station. Got there, found out he'd missed his bit and ran, had to run back round. <laughs> <laughs> He probably went to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that percussionist still in the orchestra now? Oh yeah, no, yes. he's not in the Ian orchestra. He was an, he's an extra. But um, right. the, the other the other, so you, uh, then we've got uh, three soprano saxophones who double bamboo pipes, four trumpets, uh, and this is the killer: six trombones. It's loud in a way you can't conceive of, um, and the the things he asks the instruments to do are amazing. But the the there's some bits where there's some bits where uh, I, I'm sorry, I've totally lost my thread, but the, the, the I mean, when we, we have quite a big orchestra. We have an orchestra of 68 people on contract here. And so, you, you know, we you get... Um, Are you using I, all of them? Uh, so none of the strings, strings, but... So yes. you, well, you, you put together a list of how many you need, and then you fill in the names of what we call our on-contract strength. And then you look at the holes. And normally I'm used to sitting in the orchestra office and I see these sheets and there's like one or two holes, we need an extra here or yeah. an extra here. And, and, and I mean, it's just you look at it and it looks, it looks like a basically a bare piece of paper because we have to bring in, we, you know, we don't have six trombones on contract. We don't have, yes. you know, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkable thing to have even, again, to conceive of an opera with that orchestration. And it, it's not like the sixth trombonist has nothing to do. He's a busy man. Yeah. You know, it's... A, <laughs> It, it, everyone is yeah, working. Not just sitting there for half an hour and And the other thing we should point out is that it's amplified. Um, yes. As, uh, the singers are amplified, yes. Oh, that's, that's... Just necessity, I mean, necessity. you couldn't you do wouldn't it. Hear a but the thing with um, being amplified mean is, means, as singers often, especially in the Colosseum, uh, a singer's piano sometimes in the Colosseum is probably their mezzo forte, and you've got you, it's in relation to the size of theatre you're singing in. Whereas because we're mic'd up, the, the PPP elements that we're singing can really be that because you don't have to fight against the strength of the orchestra, or um, and you know, I've got we've all got moments where we're going. And that's never going to be heard over four other singers singing and 50 other people playing. But you, it, it's going to be an interesting thing to be able to discover microphone use and what can be heard. And it's another kind of conductor, I suppose, having a, um, somebody on the controlling we've, we've not the sound. Even, we've not even talked about the electronic music, but just on the note of the, of the, of the mics. So, to, I mean, I'm thinking of this today because this was this morning's rehearsal. There's a chorus, but it's 16, 16 chorus. And they don't appear on stage. They sing off stage, the whole thing, and they're piped in through the mics. Um, but the most extraordinary bit of orchestration I've ever seen for a bit of writing for chorus is at the end of Act One when the, oh when the chorus have, um, have percussion to play. So today, the principal percussion, McDoran, turned up at my chorus repertoire call and brought 
all the percussion instruments along, and you've never seen a more excitable group of children in your life. <laughs> and so they're, they're doing unpitched, they're going, duh, so, so, ba, and they've got to play the percussion sometimes at the same time and sometimes not. And it's all written out on the score. And they've got to do it all at the same, same time. And um, he, we were rehearsing it. And uh, some, there were some words that maybe I shouldn't say out loud when people didn't quite... Because, you know, when 12 people are doing one rhythm and one person gets it wrong, it's pretty obvious. And, uh, and Mick walked in to the rehearsal and someone walked in and went, ah! Ah, I see you've got the same lyrics as we do in the orchestra. <laughs> So this is sort of an opera like no, like no other, um, pretty much. Um, yeah, it really is. Has that created technical um, issues for you as a, as a costume designer? Because obviously they're going to have to sing in whatever you've dressed them in. Um, yeah, I... I yes. <laughs> but did you compromise that? No, I didn't compromise, and everyone has been really amazing um, to work with, and everyone's going with it, and, and you've got some pretty heavy stuff to wear. And, um, but all you have to do is make sure they can sing, it's not around the neck, and they can breathe. Yeah. And then I think everything else, they've been very kind um, so far with. But, you know, when, this is a personal thing. Um, when I go to see something on the stage... I, I go to watch the visuals. I go, I, I want to hear the music, but I want to see something. I want to feel the story, but I want to, I need another world. You know, you go to an opera or a, a theatre piece to see another world happening in front of you. So I just thought, well, I'm really going to show a new, like a, a, another, it's going to be very colourful. And there's lots of Swarovski crystals, so there's lots of bling all over the place. And, um, and I, because of Daniel's stage direction as well, um, the the characters have developed between myself, Daniel, um, and um, Christina from from the ENO, and it's been a really big collaboration. So it's um, it's been making everything technically perfect, so everyone can wear everything, and they've done a really amazing job. And presumably, it hasn't come cheap. Um, well, I think we got the smallest budget, but uh, for for me, I like to use personally. I use safety pins and stick things together, but. Um, uh, I, I like to be very creative. It, you know, there's some like really beautiful couture gowns in it, and then other things are just complete messy. Other things are very textured and very freehand, and and so there's different elements of different worlds going on. And um, there's you know there's a there's a rock star world, there's an an alien world, and then there's a kind of a I'm not sure what the the terminology is, but there's a there's a there's a nightmare world as well where you're going to get lots of um, pink things on stage, how, they're things. The thing is, how do you, how do you as, as, as a designer, I mean, what, what Harry has done is essentially got, he's got three, three, three things happening on stage all at the same time. He has uh, Orpheus and Eurydice who are dancers. He has Orpheus and Eurydice who are Daniel and uh, Claire, and then he's got Orpheus and Eurydice, who is myself, and Marta. Three different things happening on stage. Have you ever seen the movie The Others? Do you know that movie where it turns out that, that the people who are the, the main characters turn out themselves to be ghosts? <laughs> they don't know they're actually dead, they're ghosts. And so we've got three ghostly things happening on stage at the same time. And it's a, a miraculous thing. How, how on earth do you do that as a, as a designer? I mean, I mean what, 
for, for me, it's color, texture, and shape, and that's how I work. And it, it's the silhouettes of, of the three Eurydice's and also the colors. So you, you'll know who's who on stage. You, yeah, yeah. Even though the cast is, is very, you know... Yeah, we're, trying, we're trying to, to sort of see the other, the other characters as if they are there. This Aren't we? Occasional we're trying moments to, of, there are occasional of moments aware. of. Uh, I, yeah. I know. You. Are you me? Are you me? Uh, <laughs> am I alone? Is yeah. what yes, you I see. say. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in and I'm, scene, I'm looking through one, you when I'm saying I, it. Am yeah. I alone? Yeah. Are you, and you're looking through the other person. Yeah. Uh, I, it's an extraordinary thing. It really is. It does look like you guys are really enjoying this process. Um, <laughs> because that's <laughs> it. <laughs> it does push you to a place you might not have conceived of going before, and you, you're not necessarily sure when you start the journey. You know, I will admit that, wh that when I got that score, when I became a borrower, and I learned, I opened that one, I listened to it through for the first time, I sat on my sofa and I, I just asked myself the serious question, is this beyond my ability? I think I do. Exactly you, you, and you have to, and you, because you know there so is no. <laughs> and we'll find out on October the eighteenth whether it is. But you have, and because you know, there's no shame if you, I can't do this. No. I can't do this, so I think I shouldn't. So you know, and I had to ask myself that question really seriously. But it's, um, you know, we get to go back to the same word that Peter said. It's very easy with all the things that we do in the industry, which is my least favorite word that we work in, for music to be put in a cage. Yeah. And this is what it is, and this is how you do it, and this is how you earn your money. And it's very nice to go, this no. This is what happens when you open the cage. <laughs> I, I, this piece I, is that. Yeah. I, if, if anyone here enjoys doing cryptic crosswords, it's kind of like uh, a really difficult cryptic crossword that when you solve it you're so satisfying that it's got a beautiful theme or something it's, it's Daniel yeah, yeah. You no no but I, like <laughs> I've got I've got I've got the couple in the top left hand corner hey. yeah but I, I think the stage direction um Daniel when I first listened to it this is someone that's not worked in this world before um I was like I have no idea how this is going to look at these characters but they're, they're, we've made the characters solid in this world so but the, the stage direction, I, I walked into rehearsal the other day and I, I just peeked through the door. You couldn't see me and I was just, and I was like, oh, it makes so much sense now. Like, and it's the stage direction yeah, and the choreography absolutely. that's really come together to make it um, a really amazing piece, I think. And of course, it helps it's a familiar story. People know the outline of the story, even if this is a different way of telling it. It's part of a season here that there are four operas all telling the same story, basically. Mm -hmm. um, how closely have you worked with the other productions? Not at all. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not in the room for Mask of Orpheus as anywhere near as much as I'd like to be because I'm working with the chorus on the Gluck and the Offenbach. Right. So, yeah, I am. But my, so my normal job, if I wasn't second conductor on this, would be to just be going from different production, different production, different. And that's time you get very, very used to that, to knowing the bits that you're in really well, yeah. and the none of the other bits. Yeah. And uh, so to be also doing the Mask of Orpheus, as I would say, that's also been a big challenge for me, is feeling like I walk into the room and go, oh, which bit is this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a small link, actually, between uh, Orpheus in the Underworld and I workshopped some of the new translation a couple of... Well, it must have been uh, in March last this year, this year. 
September, March. Um, and actually seeing what they're doing, the, the way that that story evolves compared with ours is, was a really exciting um, thing to see. But also the fact that the every single Orpheus production is on the same set, which will be so exciting to to see. I don't. I, I can't think of a time that uh, four different operas with the same story have been done on the same set by different directors and different costume designers, and the way that, that all links together. But I think that's a genius idea, and and opens up the world to different people who might not have come to see an opera before. Say, oh, actually, I'd like to see all four because yeah. they I'd are like to so see different. Yeah. So it's a unit set. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. It, it was amazing to watch Lizzie kind of come in with her um, small uh, set, and she was like, "Well, this is going to be. There's going to be a taxi here, and you guys are going to have this thing coming in here, and this, and and she really made it work. She's amazing, and and she had to get measurements for outfits because some of them were quite big. So it was a, it was just like a, a huge collaboration, I think, and Lizzie kind of really cracked it. Um, shall I throw to some questions from you guys? There's one right at the front. We'll wait for a microphone. Just wondered if you could say something about the electronic music, the role it plays in the house. Uh, so, just before we came up here, I said, I'm very worried someone's going to ask me a question, and the answer is going to be, I don't know. And um, the honest answer is, I don't know. I've operated the laptop where I press the cues a few what, times. What specifically did you want to know? I just wanted to know something about the, the role you see it playing and uh, what, what differences it makes to the... Um, it's a totally different piece because of it. Uh, it, it I'll try my best. Um, and this is only through rehearsing it and, and hearing it in the, in, in, in the, on mm. the re recordings. Um, in the 60s and 70s, there was a penchant for, uh, uh, especially uh, composers like Stockhausen and O'Reilly um, and people like that, of uh, pre-recorded, uh, ambiance, kind of atmospheric music on tape. Hilarious story is that when this uh, piece was first performed, of course, they had Revox B77s. Does anybody know what that is? No. Well, it's a massive, great reel-to-reel <laughs> -reel tape recorders. They had like a dozen of these reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders, and then they clunk, and then they'd run to the other one, and a bit of tape and clunk. And it provides a, it provides an ambience, and it also provides the voice of Apollo. Apollo appears in this piece. He looms large in this piece. He's responsible for the whole thing. And his voice is on, was originally on, on uh, quarter inch, uh, sorry, uh, half inch, whatever it is, <laughs> electronic tape. Now it's, uh, now now it's, it's on computers. All, it's all, it's all repeated ones on computers. We still call it tape, though. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you still call it tape, my God. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's, that's what happens. In it, and it, it provides not only the, the um, voice of Apollo and the ambiance and, and angry bees. Yes. Angry harp. bees, angry harp. Also, it provides quite a lot of it. Is uh, there, are the, there is a, a three-minute section of just electronic music, which was who was, did Harry do that? No, that was he. Barry he's Anderson. Yes. Yep. Barry Anderson. Okay, so and and that's electronic music composed by Barry Anderson. And there are, and there are sections that that is that too. To, 
hate to say it, but to me that's really kind of 70s uh, sort of stuff. But it's the most fantastic sounds. Mm. It sounds like a plumber's nightmare occasionally. Um, so, Dave, I hope I mean, that, well, I hope that A lot of it is, is beautifully choreographed. So oh there, God, are, there yeah, are dancers the in the show, and they, mm. they pass, Sorry. They, they, the music of the kind of passing clouds, which is this electronic music, uh, and you which I think was basically sure. written, Harry wrote very sparse instructions on how he wanted it to sound, and just said, you know, Off do you that, go. yeah, and 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 it's uh, there's this wonderful kind of glass box that passes across. Well, I haven't seen, I've seen only seen it in the model. We can't <laughs> wait to see it. Yeah, but the, the passes over, and there's there's things being enacted, but quite what looks like to be really kind of exciting scenes being enacted by the dancers in the show who are so incredible. at the bottom of these enormous scores, so you have, you know, kind of all handwritten out along, I think it's 52 scores to the music. And then at the bottom, we've got this kind of like... A pictorial. Got a kind of pictorial representation. So you've kind of got the like the aura of bee or summer or a winter aura, and they all kind of look different. And they have kind of different shapes that kind of go along. And you know, the, that first music staff meeting where we discussed what five was as opposed to three, four, one of the questions Richard Pearson was asked was, so do I have to play this? And it was, it was you know, kind of the picture. Did you not know it was? Because yeah, right. I don't know how to play that. <laughs> and, 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 and quite frequently there'll be a point where there'll be a pause and they'll say, signal eight. And you know, we've got a little track that says signal eight, mm -hmm. let's play. And it'll go, and then you carry on. That's Apollo. That's Apollo. So it's all written in, but um, at the risk of sounding, uh, Martin said, don't worry, that's something you don't have to worry about. <laughs> okay. So somebody else has pre-recorded all that for you. Yeah. Yes. Someone else's problem. But I also think as a singer, it's uh, a very, it's a different element to add into your own uh, vocal production because you're so used to either hearing a note being played or a chord underneath or something else, but this is, it's, it's just a sound world. And I think some of us can relate, um, if you're in a busy, uh, in a busy supermarket or something and there's lots of noise going around and you're trying to think about one thing and think about another, and another thing and you're moving and you're doing stuff and you can get quite anxious. But I think that's, this, that's what Harrison also wanted with that, is to create a, a world of sound which also uh, draws in your own emotion and makes people think of things in different ways and feel things, not just necessarily hearing the music and feeling. It actually all-encompassing. On the, on the note of sound world, the top of Act 2, it says, uh, I think it's summer aura to be played before the audience enters the theatre. So as the audience enters, you're kind of returning to the sound world. It's not that you're not allowed in until it's finished. <laughs> Do you know, it reminded me most of when I first heard the, uh, these summer auras went on the bees and stuff like that was when uh, Captain Kirk and Spark and <laughs> Dr. McCoy beamed down into that planet, you know, and there's that sound. Yeah. There's that weird sound of an alien planet. That's, uh, I remember on the first day of rehearsals, I suddenly went... Mr. Spock, we need to do this. A lot of necessary jokes in the rehearsal. No jokes at all. <laughs> I think the, one, the other thing that um, was asked earlier was about Burt Whistle. So I, I'm quite new to this world, but I have done a piece of Stockhausen before. And when I came into rehearsal and heard the track for the first time, I thought, this is 
very familiar. And um, mom, I told my dad I was doing this. My dad is a bit of, he likes looking things up. He's not very musical, but he likes looking things up. And he said, oh, no, because you've done that before, because the guy who wrote the tape for that did the Stockhausen that you did seven years ago. So uh, yeah. that's the relationship between wow. that. So that was, um, yeah. I know, he's very good sometimes. <laughs> Um, another question, uh, one down here. Is there any chance at all, sorry, is there any chance at all that it's going to be recorded visually as well as in sound? Because it sounds as though it's a pretty much one-off. It's unlikely to get revived with all the work that's involved. No, there should really be some I, kind of record. I was told it wasn't. Yeah. I, I, I agree, too. Um, I th I th I'm revealing state secrets that... that uh, We've been, have been pushing hard for a Radio Three broadcast for a while. I don't know where it's at. But I know it's not going to be revived. No, I don't know. I don't know that. about the. Visual. I think most things Daniel, are um, recorded for ar archival yeah. anyway. So yeah. I think. Yeah, that that's the other thing. I, I was told it wasn't going to be revived, so I don't know. So it would be amazing, but. So it is very much a one-off. Yeah, I think so. Catch it in one of the five, five performances that's been given. Um, uh, next question. You, you mentioned um, Bert Whistle at the beginning, at the planning session. Is he, is he involved in this production, or does he leave you to get on with it? He, <laughs> <laughs> I, he was uh, here at the first talk through, uh, which was uh, four weeks ago. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, he's, he's left us alone to do, to do what we need to do. But um, he's, he's been around, we've talked to him. I certainly had to ask him a lot of questions about uh, what, he, what his intentions were. And so he has been involved, but so far, for me as a performer, only, only in, the, in, in that first day. But I know that uh, Martin and I know that Daniel Kramer has been speaking to him extensively over the last uh, few months. And I know that Martin Brabins knows him quite well. Yeah, they're, they're, they're very good friends. Good friends. So in that respect, it's inevitable that he would have been involved. Um, I dare say he'll be around for some of the yes. theatre rehearsals. Uh, the other pieces I've done by him, he's been, he's always, he's been there a yeah, lot. Yeah, he was there at my... He's never interfering, but just he's coming to yeah. absorbing. Yeah. I, I do know he approved um, all, all of Daniel's ideas, um, yeah. and that was a while ago. And, um, and he said he was very happy and he couldn't have wished for anything better yeah, to me um, personally That's what, um, about the whole production. So I want, to, I want to say something about... Um, I don't want to be contentious or anything, but I want to say something about Daniel Kramer, who is the director of this piece. And I, and I know I'm treading on <laughs> sort of thin ice here, but it has been fantastic process in this past four weeks. And Daniel has been the most, I mean, the most prepared. Yeah. The, and this is, I don't know. It's, this piece is right up his alley. Yeah. It's precisely what he was put on this earth mm. for. And this will, you will see that. I guarantee it. You will see exactly that. Imagine the challenge of putting three three pairs of lovers on the stage in the same timeline from different, <coughs> from, from different universes, from different uh, dimensions. Imagine the challenge of that. And he is, 
has been inspirational to me in that, and I hope to the rest of the country. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's all that's I right. want to say about yeah. that. And, and, you know, you read the Wikipedia article on this page, on this, on this piece, which is, you know, probably where we all start, and, and go, how the hell am I ever going to understand this? And I'm prepared. How is anyone who's not known anything, who walks through our doors and maybe is seeing their first opera, how are they going to get their head into this? And just, just as, as we've all been saying, I, in the production room, I've gone, oh, I get it. That's how it works. Yeah, that's, that's how, how it works. Storytelling, lucid, absolutely unambiguous. Well, no, deliberately ambiguous in certain things. Tribiguous. Tribiguous, that's it. Well done. Antriguous. I don't know what, there must be a word. Yeah, yeah. God, you went to posh school. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Bodleian. Yeah, just something I read about Bodleian. There was another question right beside. I'm interested about Act 3 compared to the first two, because it was written a lot later, ten years afterwards. I wonder if you feel any different in how it's written or... It's so um, much easier for me. Is it? Yeah. But what's, what's different in, in it about the third act from those first two, do you think? Is it, wow. It... It's, it, I, I, like, I, I knew that, that it was written much later, but I only found that out after, I, you know, after we'd started, and I wouldn't have known it. No. I wouldn't, it doesn't... It doesn't I mean, the, the three acts are very separate. Yeah. They, they come at it from in a very separate way, but it, it ties in extremely well, and it, there's lots of overlapping material. And in fact, the kind of cubist nature of the, of the piece is that you're looking, at, you're looking at different sides of the same story all at once. It is like a, it's, it's kind of cubist music, cubist theater. And uh, so you, it, the, at the end of act one, it, it, uh, Peter talks about remembering something that hasn't happened, that we only see in act two. And then I talk about the same thing in Act Three, uh, and so lots of it, it cross references itself. And I, I don't think you would know that it was a separate. Uh, and especially uh, the way that Daniel's done it, it all yes. absolutely ties in, and that the language that uh, I, the new language that he invented, uh, I've forgotten the chap's name. Sorry, uh, Zenobia, the Zenobia, yeah. sorry. Uh, invented is of very obviously the language of Apollo. It's the gods. It's the language of the gods, and he doesn't un he doesn't understand that. And and that was the revelation to me of Daniel's direction was that it was the language of the gods. And eventually, or Orpheus understands that what he's saying is that. And then then there's the catharsis, and there is catharsis at the end of it. It's not it's it's not left. Um, uh, without without a, a satisfactory ending, so to speak, it it is it is there. The language of the gods. And that's that's yeah. And that's actually, how we've done it, isn't it? It's it's just brilliant. A side note on that language, actually, for the, for, for for language geeks, it's <laughs> it's a proper constructed yeah, language, is, like yeah. Dothraki or Klingon. He's he's created this language using or the Esperanto yeah or no yeah or or Elvish. Like, no, but you're like yeah, but yeah. exactly <laughs> exactly, but it has. It has syntax, it has present and past tenses. It's all based on the phonemes from the name Orpheus yeah. and Eurydice. Those, those, all the syllables come from those, those names, and it has, there's, there's, a, there's a, a lexicon at the back of the libretto. Available at the Bodleian. Yeah. <laughs> that was not. <laughs> I've only had that recently. I think we could go on all evening, but could we just have two more questions? The one just there, right? 
There's a question for the singers. Um, <clears throat> I'm aware that uh, singers in musicals who are mic'd up use a quite different technique from uh, opera singers. Do you change your technique when you're mic'd up or do you, you see usual opera? Uh, from um, So I was a jazz singer for a long time before and there are you have to realise that you can do lots and lots of things with a mic that you can't do in, in different ways. Um, and also when you belt, you bring it away because it's too loud, and that's usually when it's a set uh, volume. Whereas we've got um, somebody very clever on a sound desk who will, um, I'm thinking, will change yes. the volumes uh, dependent on the uh, strength of the orchestra and where we're singing and what is required in the score as well. So I think for us, we're not changing anything in terms of the way that we sing, but the piece also uh, has some extended techniques for us as singers, which we might not sing, well, we definitely wouldn't sing if we did Puccini or we did Mozart, um, but that's the, the way that the piece is written as well. So not as such as, as singers, we wouldn't use microphone technique, I would think. It's, I think it's uh, it's worth just saying. Someone, um, he's uh, Ian Dearden is his yes. name. Yeah, is the is the man who's one. He's taken all the electronic music and put it all on track and kind of cleaned it up because lots of things got changed <laughs> the first, in nineteen eighty six and lots of things. Uh, and he's also the the man uh, the man with the desk uh, making it all work. And Genius. as far as I can tell, he might be the cleverest person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and one last question, uh, just here. Thank you. I'm, I regret that um, Bert Whistle is probably not going to make it onto my Desert Island Discs, although I have enjoyed a couple of his big theatre pieces. The musical language I'm finding incredibly difficult. I'm kind of reassured that Peter has said there's some lyrical moments to look out for, and that, that's, that, that's something to, to, to grasp. I wonder if the musicians can help the audience, what kind of signposts there will be, how we can approach it, um, how can we um, get, get through a really difficult musical language to more enjoy the God, evening. That's such a good question. Mm. <laughs> well, I think that's where theatre comes in. It's, where, it's yeah. where what you see helps make sense of what you hear. And actually, I think if, if, if you just can just sit back and ab ab absorb it, maybe notice the effect it's having on you, rather than seeking the beauty, that, that visually a lot of what you'll see, I think, will help make sense of, of what's going on. And uh, it, I think... A lot of this music just listened to in a dark room. Yeah, it's not the. It, it could be, you know, Guantanamo Bay stuff. But when you've got uh, Daniel's incredible visuals, this extraordinary choreography, just Great. amazing kind of interactions happening on on stage. Uh, I, 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 it does I, make you listen in a different way. It's not, you, you're not supposed to listen to it with the kind of narrative, uh, lyrical narrative line that you get. It, it will hit you yeah. occasionally. Mm. Those lyric things will, will hit you. And oh my God, that is so, that is so beautiful. And then, you're, and then you're immersed into something else. But, uh, I was just gonna say, it's extremely, um, the word visceral, but real. As in, it, you know, life is not lyrical and beautiful. It's, it's, and that's why when you say the visual, you, you're, watching, you're watching this story and it's very human and it's very w what these people are. And then the, and you kind of makes the, the, the music kind of, you hear it in a very different way. But you also can't judge it 
sort of through the prism of, of ordinary music appreciation, I think. And I, like, that's just not the way that Harry's extraordinary head works. I think it's, if I could just tell a quick anecdote about The Last Supper, when it was first done at Glyndebourne, uh, Stephen Wallace, who was a countertenor singing one of the roles, one of the disciples, there was a bit which he'd been asked to, to get this text through, and he couldn't because it was sitting quite low in his voice. And he, he went to Harry and said, this is a bit low. I, it's, I, I need to get this word across. And, and Harry said, well, just sing it a bit higher. And he said, well, like an octave higher would be too high, but a fifth higher? And Harry looked, looked and went, sing it a bit higher. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that says, like, you, like you could use that story as, as, as a way of sort of debunking, you know, well, that's just rubbish. But actually, I think it's a, a really interesting window into the way that his head works musically. It's not all, it's not, it's not, it's often, I mean, it, is often harmonic and interestingly harmonic, but quite often it's not. It's 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 a it's a sound world. It's about being music, true, like rather than it all working nicely together. Yeah. It's about everyone being true to who the characters yeah. are. Sing it a bit higher. Can I just say one more thing? Yeah. Um, and that is that um, I don't know whether any of you ever saw the production that you know Di Soldati. Mm -hmm. um, that's the sort of sound world that we're in. And I don't, don't know if you remember, but Die Soldaten is essentially chamber music with interludes that, that are almost, almost too much, but beautiful, beautiful chamber music that tells a very timeless story. And, and so if you, if you, do, <coughs> if you can um, think, of, think of that kind of experience of Soldaten, then I think, I think you're, 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 you're 90%. You're there. Uh, on that note, I think um, I'd like to thank this incredible panel for this increasing insights <laughs> into this opera. Can't wait to see and hear it. Mm. Uh, so thank you. thank you all. Thanks. Thank you.